Last week, we said that every believer is in a real spiritual battle. This battle is intense. It is real. Uh, From the moment we first take our spiritual breath to the moment we take our last physical breath, we are in this real cosmic battle. It is a battle for faith, and it has eternal consequences. What we said last week as well is that every once in a while, there are crises in our lives. There are hardships, there are difficulties that come in our way. And these crises, these hardships, make this battle more intense, more harder, more difficult, more challenging. They press us. And uh, for Judah at this time, they are facing a crisis. The Assyrians have invaded. They've taken over all the major cities. And now they are right up to the doorstep of Jerusalem. And uh, so this is a major crisis. Is Judah going to trust in God? Are they going to believe in God? But we also said that not only do crises make things harder, but during those crises, it is often the time where we face the greatest temptations. The enemy loves to take advantage of the situation and try to undermine our faith. The enemy wants to, the one thing the enemy wants to do is destroy our faith. And last week, we looked at in chapter 36 of Isaiah, we looked at the Rabshakeh, as he is the, the chief representative of the Assyrians. And he is attacking, he is attacking God's people. He wants to undermine their faith. He wants them to surrender. And he wants to tell them that God can't save them. And so this is the case, isn't it? Often with hardships, that they are accompanied by attacks from the enemy on our faith. So the question is, today as we move from chapter 36 to chapter 37 of Isaiah, how is Hezekiah going to do in the battle? Today we are going to watch Hezekiah fight. We're going to find out, does Hezekiah fight well or does he fail? How does he do in the battle that's before him? And we're going to watch it unfold. You could say, in a sense, that chapters 1 through 35 have all been leading us to this moment. In one sense, Isaiah has been teaching Hezekiah and all of us how to fight well. And here is the test. Here is the test to find out how well we have listened. How well have we learned from the lessons of God's word? How well has Hezekiah been prepared to fight in this battle of faith? And that's what we're going to find out in chapter 37. This is truly a pivotal chapter. Another way of illustrating what we see here is to think of the battle also as a test. Have you ever had one of those all-inclusive tests at the end of the year? And at the end of the semester, you have this one final test. It's pass or fail. Everything is included. Open book. And you have an hour and a half. And you have to be there, and it's either pass or fail. And that's what is before Hezekiah at this moment and at this time. So I'm going to read the entire lengthy passage of Isaiah chapter 37. And I want you to look at this passage and specifically look for how well Hezekiah fights in this battle of faith. Chapter 37 of Isaiah. 
As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resep, and the people of Eden who were in Talasar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Servaphim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of, the, of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. And you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest heights, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters, I dr to dry up this with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, 
and like tender grass, like grass of the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows itself and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall go return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend the city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 of the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nishrak, his god, Adremelech and Sherezar, his son, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped in the, to the land of Eret, Esrahaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Well, this was quite the battle, wasn't it? I want to summarize what we just read in a way that we should be able to understand a little better and simpler. In chapter 36, the en enemy Rabshakeh attacks Judah. He tries to persuade her to surrender. Surrender to me. Come down out of your city. Give up to, to the Assyrians. Hezekiah responds, and he responds in faith by immediately going to the presence of God in a humble disposition. He comes before the Lord in dependence and in repentance. And that we see in verse 1. And then he sends messengers for Isaiah the prophet so that he will pray for them and that they might hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah represents the word of the Lord, and he wants to hear from God. And we see that in verses 2 through 4. And so God responds to Hezekiah's faith through Isaiah, saying that he will turn the Assyrians away through a simple rumor. God is going to give him a rumor that's going to turn him away from pursuing Jerusalem. In verses 5 through 7. The Assyrians leave as God said they would do, but the Assyrians do not want Hezekiah to think that they're done. And that is often the case, isn't it? When we think the battle's over, there is something else that comes from the enemy. And here he sends a letter to Hezekiah with another attack, another volley, another, another, an, another volley from his weapons attacking the faith of Hezekiah. In verse 8, in the 9 through 13, Hezekiah responds to the attack with prayer to God in verses 14 through 20. He responds with faith in pursuing God in prayer. And then God responds through through Isaiah for the rest of the chapter, verses 21 through 38, saying, I am going to, to bring judgment on your enemies and I am going to save you. And that is God's answer to the, to the disaster and the threat that is coming upon Hezekiah. So what we just witnessed from Hezekiah's example is what it looks like to fight the battle with faith in a victorious way. Hezekiah shows us in this whole passage what it looks like to fight the battle with victorious faith. 
And really, this is the opposite of Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. If you remember in chapter 7, Ahaz had met with a similar challenge. Isaiah went to him and challenged him to walk by faith. And if you remember, he failed. And here is Hezekiah, who passes the test, who lives by faith, unlike his father. So the question for us is, what's really important for us now as we look at this, is where does such victorious faith come from? How does someone respond this way? What are the wells from which such victorious faith comes from in such difficult circumstances, in such difficult crises, when we're so hard-pressed as Hezekiah is? And this is really important for us to understand, that victorious faith comes out from a heart that is learning to love what God loves to the degree that God loves it. You see, God has affections. And God's affections are the right affections. God's affections are driven by truth. He loves what is truly lovely. He loves what is good. He loves what is right. And he loves it to the right degree. And faith is learning to love what God loves to the degree that he loves it. So the question is, what does God love supremely? What is the most lovely thing? What is the most supremely lovely thing in the universe? And this is it. God loves the honor of his name supremely above all things. God sees himself as being supreme and he loves his own glory. He loves his own name. He loves his own excellence above all other things. And this makes sense, doesn't it? You see, God is greater than all things, and he is better than all things. Therefore, he should be esteemed and loved and honored and praised above all other things. That just makes sense. And the world is only right to the degree that that is true of us. And in fact, all the problems in the world, every problem that is out there, and the degree of the problem is based on this factor, a failure to love God supremely. That is what causes all the problems in the world. And that is the greatest problem in the world. There's no greater problem in the world than getting this wrong. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says that this is God's chief concern. When we read, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You see, for God to love anything else supremely, would be for him to commit cosmic idolatry, to worship something other than what is supremely glorious. That is idolatry. And God is supremely glorious, and therefore, he is to be praised and honored and loved above all things. The victorious faith Hezekiah displays in this passage comes from knowing the truth of God and loving with his affections the truth of God. It comes from loving God properly. That's why he is able to respond the way he does here. Because he has his rightful affections. Because he loves God the way he should love God. And this is the thing. If you are to live by faith, you must know the truths of God. The problem is sometimes that's where we end. Or we don't even get there sometimes. But sometimes we just end. We think we're okay because we know the right things. But that knowledge must be accompanied by love for that knowledge. It must be accompanied by affections for the knowledge of that truth. Victorious faith sees God as supreme and loves God 
as supreme and worthy of all honor. You can see the different sides of the battle here. If you look throughout this passage, you can see the different sides of the battle. And they are all, the sides for or against God, are all based on what you love and to the degree that you love that. It is all based on the degree that you love God, the way you should love God. On one side is the enemy of God, and they are represented by Sennacherib in Assyria, who in unbelief does not see or love the glory of God above all things. And therefore they are undermining, suppressing, and attacking the truth of God's glory throughout this passage. And you see this specifically in verses 9 through 13, where Sennacherib sends sends a message to Hezekiah to convince him that God does not want to save him, that God can't save him. Actually, this time it's that God can't save him. And really, he compares God to the idols of all the other nations. He says, God is no different. Your God is no different than all the other nations that we have defeated and that we have destroyed. Therefore, he cannot save you. We will conquer you. Now, not all unbelief looks quite this obvious. It is often more subtle, isn't it? People don't often attack God outright like that. But this is the heart of all unbelief. All unbelief suppresses the truth of God. It magnifies man and it belittles God. It makes man the end all and it makes man the ultimate end. And the one who makes his, himself the supreme being. But that is only reserved for God. On the other hand, on the other side is the servant of God, who is represented by Hezekiah. He recognized by faith the supreme glory and excellence and magnesty of God. And therefore, he recognizes what the real problem is in this whole passage. He recognizes what the real problem is clearly in his mind. And he realizes that the real problem is the denial of the glory of God. You can see what Hezekiah sees as the most um, significant problem in verse 4. And and what does Hezekiah see in verse 4 as being the big problem here? God's name has been mocked. God's name has been trampled upon. And you might ask, well, doesn't Hezekiah have other problems as well? I mean... Hezekiah knows that the Assyrians have have mutilated the kings that they've taken over. And, I mean, Hezekiah is is inches away from being taken over by the Assyrians. And all the people are are in great danger. I mean, aren't there other problems that are pretty significant going on here? And yes, those are problems, but they are not the biggest problem. He knows rightly that God's name is the issue... And that God's name is what's going to motivate God to save his people. You see, God's great concern for his own glory in his own name is the greatest argument we have for God to save us. There is no argument we have greater than for God to save us for his own name's sake. There is a connection between God's honor and his people. So we say, and we should pray, this is a good prayer to pray. pray. This prayer is made throughout scriptures. Lord, save us for your name's sake. Glorify your name, save your people. Bring us into your kingdom. For your great namesake. 
And really that this is Hezekiah's greatest concern more than his safety, more than the protection of his people, really is an indication of the rightness of Hezekiah's heart. It indicates that he gets the reality of things. He realizes that the greatest problem in the world is God's name being undermined. And why? Why does he recognize this? Because faith recognizes the biggest problem in the world is a failure to honor God. The source of every sin, the source of every problem in the world, flows from the cesspool of undermining God's great name. You can see the same concern for God's glory in the reason that Hezekiah gives for why God should save them in his prayer in verses 16 through 20. Why does he conclude that God should save them? And once again, this is the second time he has said this. He says, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Just slightly different words here, but he says the same thing, that all the kingdoms of the world may know that you are Lord. That's why he argues for God to save them. You see, God is greater than all. He says that in verse 16. And then in his prayer, and then he says, but you are being mocked as if you are no greater than all the idols of the world. In verses 17 through 19. And therefore, he says, show that you are not like the idols. Show that you are greater. Show that you are the supreme God by saving us. So that all the world will know that you are God. That is a great reason, isn't it? What a great prayer. And we will look at this prayer our whole entire time next week. So we won't go any farther into it. Do you see what Hezekiah loves? Do you see what his main concern is? His main concern is not for his safety, although he is concerned about it, but God's honor. And in reality, God's honor and our safety are inseparable. You see, this is the opposite of a very fake spirituality that is out there that loves God only for the sake of ourselves. It is a very selfish spirituality. It only cares about God to the extent that God will serve us and advance our own kingdom and our own objectives. This is a spirituality that is quickly abandoned when things go bad or something better comes up for us. And this is not true spirituality, and it's not what Hezekiah presents to us in this passage. And then finally we see that there is God. And God in this passage acts to defend his own honor by judging those who oppose, who oppose the truth and saving those who love his name supremely. In verse 5 and 23, God identifies the real problem when he says, Sennacherib has reviled and mocked me. You see, God knows what is going on. God is aware of what is happening. And God is the one who determines what the real problem is. You know, it doesn't matter what I think the problem is. It doesn't matter what you think the problem is. What matters is what God thinks the problem is. He interprets the world for us. And we take what he says and we understand the world from his perspective. And he says the greatest problem is that he has been mocked and his name has been reviled. And what that means to mock God and to revile God is to fail to honor God as God. It's to suppress the truth. It's to magnify ourselves. So the question is, how have they mocked God? Well, it says here that they simply are acting as if they are supreme, as if they are ultimate, as if they are the determining factors in life rather than God. And we see that in verse 24 through 25. They put their confidence in their chariots. They said, we can climb up the mountains with our chariots. They said they can remove the great cedar trees. They can dig their wells. 
They're magnifying themselves as if they are the ones who do it, as if it's by their power and their might that they're doing all these great accomplishments. And this is just another name for pride, isn't it? When we don't acknowledge God and give thanks to God and honor God as God, all that is, even by not acknowledging the truth of God, it is another name for pride. You know what God says about pride? God says he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God undermines their prideful boasting and magnifies himself to his proper position, because that's what he does. But he does it here by explaining that he was sovereignly behind all the accomplishments that the Assyrians did in verse 26. He says, I have determined all these things from long ago. You are merely my pawns, accomplishing my purposes that I determined for you to accomplish way before time even began. Doesn't that undermine all the proud boasting of the Assyrians? God says, you didn't accomplish anything that I didn't set you out to accomplish. All your victories, all your defeats of the enemies that you're boasting in and finding prideful pride in, he says, they happened because I brought you to do them. I, I raised you up to accomplish these things. I am the one behind everything you have done. You are just instruments in my hand. And isn't this the same with all of human history? Nothing happens outside the plans of God. God says, therefore, I'll show you who's in charge in verses 28 through 29. He says, he said, the Assyrians were popular, they were famous, I should say, for putting rings in, in the noses of the people they had, they had conquered and leading them away and showing, symbolizing that they were subservient to them. And God says, I will put a ring in your nose and I will lead you away like a horse, like a bridle in a horse in a horse's mouth. I will lead you away and you will follow me where I lead you. And then you will know who's in charge and you will know who is truly God. I will vindicate my honor. That's what God says here. If God is concerned about judging his enemies for his namesake, how much more is God concerned for saving his people for his namesake? And you can see that right here in verse 32. God says that he is zealous to save his people. You might wonder, does God really care about his people? Is God doing this because he has to? And the answer is no. He loves, he is zealous to save his people. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is zealous to save you. If you're his child, God is zealous to save you and God is zealous to bring you safely into his kingdom. And he will deliver you from his enemy and his zeal will do it. And I don't know if there's, there's a greater um, confidence we can have than on the basis of his zeal. What God desires to do, what he's passionate to do, he will accomplish. So know this, church. God is zealous to save you. In verse 35, God tells us why he is so zealous to save his people. And the answer is because of his own name and his own promise. And we could have already guessed that, couldn't we? In verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. He says, I am going to bring deliverance. I am going to defend you and protect you for my name's sake. And so our salvation and God's honor are wrapped together. For God, for God to be honored is for him to save us. And also notice he says for David's sake. You might wonder, what does that mean? And God had promised David that he would save him. And God had made his covenantal promise through David and David's people after him. And so what we know from this is that it's still for his namesake. 
It's still based on his promises and his faithfulness to his promise. So God will save his people and his honor and his glory is at stake in doing so. And he will save you. And so throughout this passage, God is defending his honor. Everything God does is about his honor and his praise and defending his name. God's work of salvation and judgment are both supremely about the vindication of his honor. And this is why Hezekiah's prayer moves God so much, because Hezekiah gets it. Hezekiah has the heart of God. He understands the heart of God, and he loves what God loves. What we see throughout this passage is that the enemy attacks God's honor, right? They're on one side. God's servant magnifies God's honor. They are on the other side, and God defends his honor. The battle is based on the honor of God. So the question for us is, what will such victorious, God-honoring faith look like? What does that look like in our lives? And we see this through Hezekiah's example. First, God-honoring faith will look like taking a posture of humility. A humble, a posture of humility looks like depending on God. It always looks like depending on God. And often takes the, the, the posture of repentance as well. And we see that in Hezekiah, in verse 1 and verse 3. He is both dependent on God. You see that in the, in the, in the, um, in the fact that he, that he tears his clothes. That's a sign of distress, of need, of dependence. And he goes to God. He enters the presence of God um, in that manner, saying that, I need you, God. That is the right way to approach God. That is the humble way to approach God. But notice he also repents. He also comes in a, in a heart of repentance because he has done wrong. And he asks God for forgiveness. And he says, in a sense, they are like a mother trying to give birth. Right? You can't give birth. And he says, we want to deliver the people, but we can't. We are helpless. We are sinful. And we need God. Notice there is something missing in his dependence and his repentance. And what is that? What is missing is a lack of justification. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't uh, give qualifications for his lack of ability to save himself. He doesn't qualify his repentance. Right? And that's because he is honoring God with his repentance. He knows how to repent. He is like David, who is a man after God's own heart in his repentance. You might ask, what did Hezekiah have to repent of? And if you remember, they turned to Egypt for help. And if you remember, they turned to Assyria to try to buy them off. And in both cases, Hezekiah was wrong. And even no matter how much he was involved in them, he is still guilty as the leader of God's people. And he needs to publicly repent of his sin. Hezekiah, in this case, becomes a model of the posture of humility and his dependence and his repentance. Both of these things show us what it looks like to honor God with our posture. He is not concerned about human opinion. Who cares what people think? What matters is what God thinks. And so often we are afraid to repent because we're concerned about what other people will think of us. But it also ultimately doesn't matter. When we see God, what matters is what God thinks. God-honoring faith will secondly look like exalting God in prayer. And Hezekiah gets the message from a Sennacherib that attacks God's character and threatens Hezekiah himself. And uh, so what does he do? He spreads it before the Lord. 
It's as if he says, do you see this, Lord? Do you see what they're saying about you? Do they see what the accusations they're making? He knows that God sees it, but this symbolizes his presenting it to the Lord. And, and it's as if he says with, a sh with shock and outrage, do you see what they're saying about you? And Hezekiah then prays to God in verses 14 through 20 that we will look at next week. But he prays God-honoring, God-centered prayer for God to honor his name and to deliver his people. And faith ex expresses itself through prayer. If we are to honor God with our lives, we will be people who pray. Pray, uh, prayer exalts God's name and says, I need you, and God, you are great. God-honoring faith will also look like the pursuit to know what God has to say from his word and his promises. And throughout this passage, Hezekiah finds comfort from God's word. He seeks God's word. We see that in verses 6 through 7, that God takes away his fear. Hezekiah seeks a word from God from Isaiah, and God responds and takes away his fear. He says, do not fear. He says, I am going to send a rumor. Isn't it amazing all the ways God could have saved, um, could have saved Jerusalem, Judah, and Hezekiah? But he decides the cosmic God of the universe decides to send a rumor that turns away the whole Assyrian army from Hezekiah and from Jerusalem. That is amazing. It's almost as if God is returning the volley and he mocks the Assyrians and says, I can turn you away with just a rumor. God's word throughout his scriptures is the place where we find comfort. It's a place where fear is taken away and where our hearts are comforted. If you do not know God's word, you will not be comforted and you will not find strength to live by faith. God's word gives Hezekiah a sign concerning, concerning his faith. He says in the next, in verses uh, 30 through 31, that in the next few years, you will know that I have done this because I will provide food for you. The crops will continue to grow even though they shouldn't have because of the way events unfolded. God will miraculously cause their crops to come up so that they will know that this is God who does this. That this is not some lucky happening that took place in their lives, but this is God's hand that brought them deliverance. And they themselves will bear fruit. Then God's word continue to get, continues to give them assurance. And I want to see that God's word over and over again gives assurance and comfort and peace to his people. God gives assurance that God will save them to the uttermost. That the enemy will not even touch them. In verses 33 through 35. Not even an arrow will reach them. They will not even be touched by the enemy. God will protect them and deliver them and save them. And it's emphasized word upon, heaped upon word upon word to make it clear to Hezekiah and God's people that, that the enemy will not even touch them and God will deliver them. And we finally see that God-honoring faith looks like expectant, patient, calm, waiting on God to fulfill his promises in his timing. And we see that in verses 36 through 38. And these are the amazing events described of God's deliverance. And they're so simple and straightforward, almost in a sense, undramatic, but I think that's intentional to show the greatness of our God and his salvation. It is not hard for God to save. So what does God do? He sends an, his angel that strikes down 185,000 Assyrians with a plague. And so they wake up and there's death in the camp. And this little plague turned the entire army around. Isn't that amazing? And then uh, Sennacherib himself returns home and he's killed by his own sons while he worships his God. 
That is significant, isn't it? Hezekiah goes to the true God and finds deliverance. Sennacherib goes to his God and is killed. You know, this appears to happen immediately in the text, doesn't it? But the point I want to make here is that it actually takes about 20 years from when God says that Sennacherib will be killed to when he is actually killed. And this reminds us that we need to wait patiently on God, that he will fulfill his promises. And sometimes it takes a long time, and it doesn't seem like he is, but faith waits on God. We are to stand in our faith, confident in our Lord that he will deliver us, even in the midst of the chaos of life. And there is a lot of chaos out there, isn't there? And the reason is because we don't live by sight, we live by faith. God will show his glory. He will show us that he is the master and that he reigns. So how do you fight a victorious battle of faith? The key to fighting a victorious battle of faith is loving what God loves to the degree that God loves it. You must know and love the truth of God. Our God is magnificent and glorious, greater than we could ever imagine him to be, and our lives are to be spent understanding and loving him more and more every day. That is why we exist and that is the purpose that we should be pursuing. In other words, you must have saving faith. And we are to be growing in that faith every day. And that's what God does when he changes our hearts. He gives us a taste and a love for what is supremely glorious and what is supremely valuable. But before we had no desire for God, we had no love for him. We couldn't see him. We couldn't taste him. We didn't love his glory. But now we do. And where do we look? We look to Christ alone. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, that, that Jesus says, uh, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And when he talks about lifted up, he's talking about glorifying himself, exalting himself, magnifying himself. He is lifted up on the cross and he is lifted up through his resurrection from the dead. We need to continuously hold before our eyes our magnificent Savior and his power to save and ask God to tune your heart to sing his praise. Ask God to open your eyes up when you read God's word to see his glorious excellence so that you will live a life of saying that God is great. So what will victorious God-honoring faith look like in our lives? You'll approach God with a humble posture. You will cry out to God in God-exalting prayer. You will seek to know what God's word says, and you will wait on God to fulfill his promises. In family devotions this past week, I was reading 1 Peter. And God says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he tells um, God's people who they are. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priest, priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So I told my kids over and over again, who are you? Who are you? Who are you if you're in Christ? And this is who you are. But notice the reason that you are these things. Notice that what, what, what does it mean that you are these things? And it goes on to tell us what this means. That so that, you might say, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is why we are here on this earth. And I pray that God would make you into someone who lives their lives proclaiming his excellencies everywhere you go. And I pray that God would do that in my heart because that is who we are, Christian. That is who you are. You are a proclaimer of the excellencies of God. Is this what you're all about? 
Is this growing in your life? Are you praying for God to do this in you? Are you asking God to open your eyes that you'll see his glory? I pray that that is true of every one of us. And praise God that we have the supreme purpose for living right before us. And that we can fulfill what we were created to do. Praise God for his amazing grace that he's poured out on us. Let's pray. Dear, glorious, almighty God, Lord, we confess to you that our hearts do not love you as they should. Lord, our hearts are oftentimes loving other things supremely. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness. And I pray that you would open up my eyes, open up our eyes and our hearts, that we might behold the glory of God. Lord, help us to taste and see what is truly glorious. Lord, help us not to be deceived into thinking that the cesspools, the mud, the, 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 the things of this world are in any way glorious, God. Help us never to see man in, in a position that in any way undermines your glory. God, you are the supreme glory. You are God and you reign supreme. Lord, I pray that we would, that our eyes would be open, that our ears would, would hear, that our mind would see and think and understand the great glorious name that you have. And God, I pray that you would open up our mouths, that we might do what we're created to do, that we might proclaim your excellencies everywhere we go. And Lord, if there is someone who is hearing this today who does not know you, I pray that you would, you would bring that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would open up their eyes and help them to see your glory for the first time. And Lord, I pray that we would fight well by faith with our lives. God, thank you for graciously opening up our eyes. Thank you for showing us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.